0: The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We were just out, I guess sightseeing, I guess you'd say. And the kids got tired, they fell asleep in the car, so I decided to just head on home. But I saw a road I hadn't been on before. We liked to take back roads and just went down that road. And There was a guy standing in the road, flagging me down, so I stopped. Everything was done in a matter of five or 10 seconds. He swung himself around and fired twice. One caught me in the arm, the other one I went off somewhere. Danny cried the whole way. I could hear him softly just moaning and Christy was dying. I just hit my cast, started the car and left. The car door shut itself. She was giddy. She laughed. She cracked jokes. I mean, she's reenacting the gruesome shootings of her three children. She doesn't seem at all upset. This is worse than me. Okay. I'm sure he didn't intend to shoot my arm. Emotionally, she was flat. I kept trying to tell her to roll over so she wouldn't choke on the blood. And it didn't dawn on me at the time that the blood was coming from her lungs. Her behavior was not anything that you would expect for uh, a mother who'd gone. remember that night for the rest of my life whether I want to or not I don't think I was very lucky I think my kids were lucky but Diane says she sure I, I could I could sit here and cry and be all upset and what's it gonna prove it proves nothing this episode I'll be telling you about the case of Diane Downs but first let's get our PNW town profile. Springfield, Oregon is located in the southern Willamette Valley and at the 2010 census had a population of just under 60,000. The creator of The Simpsons, Matt Groening, is from Springfield and of course in The Simpsons, the town that Homer and the fam live is called Springfield. Although Groening held on to which Springfield inspired Homer's hometown. The Oregon Springfield took third in the voting to choose one of the 16 Springfields in the U.S. to host the premiere of The Simpsons movie. Although Springfield did not host the premiere, Matt Groening sent a plaque to the city of Springfield that stated in part, Yoda Springfield, Oregon, the real Springfield. And in 2012, Groening confirmed to Smithsonian Magazine that he named the fictional Springfield after his Oregon hometown. He admitted he had left it a secret for so many years to allow people the enjoyment of assuming it was based on their Springfield. The Springfield Public Library is located within City Hall, which is home to a seal of the city of Springfield that was created out of unusual items from the city's sewer system. The seal and its creator, Russell Zialkowski, were featured on The Tonight Show. Keeping it real weird, Oregon, and that is a summary of Springfield, Oregon. This is the second time I'm visiting Springfield, and I hope they don't give me a reason to come back anytime soon. Now on to the story. Elizabeth Diane Downs was born on August 7, 1955 to Wesley and Willa Dean Fredrickson in Phoenix, Arizona. She went by her middle name Diane. As far as her childhood goes, her parents were in their teens when they married and when Diane was born, and it has been said that they may not have been as attentive and emotionally available to her as most parents. Even worse, Diane accused her father of sexual abuse that began at the age of 11 and spanned over the following few years. As quickly as the abuse had started, Diane claims it stopped, and he became a more attentive father. She graduated from Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, where she met her future husband, Steve Downs. The high school sweethearts would part for a bit while Steve joined the Navy, and Diane enrolled at Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in Orange, California, but she was expelled after one year for promiscuous behavior and moved back in with her parents in Arizona. Steve and Diane reunited after he left the Navy, and they married in November of 1973 after she ran away from home. From the jump, the marriage was rocky. Diane seemed bored by her husband, who worked a full-time schedule, and she may have realized that marrying him was not really the escape from her father that she had been seeking. However, things turned around a bit when she became pregnant. She absolutely loved carrying a baby and felt in charge of a love that was all dependent on her. She relished in the delight of being pregnant but it was very short-lived. Their daughter, Christy, was born in October of 1974, and she was right back to a mundane life, but now had a baby on her hip and a part-time job at a thrift store to make ends meet. She craved the feeling she had while she was pregnant the first time around, and it wasn't long until baby number two was on the way. The couple's second daughter, Cheryl Lynn, was born in January of 1976. Through the next two years, Diane separated from Steve on several occasions. She would take the kids to a relative's home, and eventually Steve would track her down and convince her to come back. Both parties of the marriage were unhappy, but the marriage persisted. The family moved to Mesa, Arizona, where both Steve and Diane worked at the same mobile home manufacturer. Diane worked on the assembly line, where she met a new man who she began an affair with, not long after she was pregnant and this time it was not her husband's baby. Her son Danny was born in December of 1979. Although the boy was not his, Steve accepted him as his own. However, within a year, the couple decided to divorce. Diane moved in with Danny's father, and those around her noticed that she had began to change. She was not interested in fulfilling her responsibilities as a mother and was not interested in being a wife either. She began to work a lot and found ways to spend as much time away from home as possible, dropping the kids on any babysitter she could find. In 1981, Diane found a full-time job with the post office and was stationed in Chandler. She also agreed to become a surrogate for an infertile couple, and using her egg, she was artificially inseminated. She carried the child and delivered a healthy baby girl in May of 1982 in exchange for $10,000. Around this time, she met Lou Lewiston, which is a fake name given to Diane's love interest by Anne Rule in her book, Small Sacrifices, and I will be using it as well to protect the privacy of this man and his family. So Lou Lewiston was a co-worker at the post office, and Diane fell in love. For the first time in her life, she truly had her heart broken when Lou decided to leave Diane. At this point, she transferred to a new post office location in Cottage Grove, Oregon, to be near her parents, who had moved to the area a few years prior. On Thursday, May 19, 1983, at 10.48 p.m., a red Nissan with an Arizona license plate careened into the emergency drop-off of McKenzie Willamette Hospital in Springfield, Oregon. The driver was laying on the horn, summoning Dr. John Mackey, the physician in charge, and two nurses, Rose Martin and Shelby Day, from the ER towards a blonde woman who was waving wildly at them and pointing towards the interior of her car. As the double doors opened, the woman began repeatedly screaming, "'Somebody just shot my kids!' The receptionist, seeing and hearing what was happening, immediately called the police." When the nurses got close to the vehicle, they noticed blood everywhere and three small children who appeared to have been shot at close range. One little girl was in the passenger seat while her brother and sister were in the back seat. The hospital personnel knew this was bad and immediately called for the staff in intensive care to assist in the ER. Nurses wept as they carried the three children into the hospital as Dr. Mackey informed the incoming staff by repeating chest wounds. Two of the children were still breathing, although not easily, and the girl found in the passenger seat appeared to be beyond help, and she was pronounced dead just moments after being wheeled into the hospital. The other little girl and the toddler boy were rushed into surgery and miraculously came out alive, but in a very fragile state. By the time the two children were out of surgery, they were identified as Christy Downs, age 8, and Danny Downs, age 3 and Cheryl Ann Downs, age 7, was the child who had passed. Their mother, 27-year-old Diane Downs, was the one who had brought them into the ER, claiming that they had been shot by a, quote, bushy-haired stranger who had waved down her car on the quiet highway. She thought he needed help, so she pulled over to assist him, but the man pointed his gun through her car window and fired on all three children. Based on this description, Springfield and Lane County Police issued an emergency watch on the city streets and county roads out of fear that a madman was on the loose and a manhunt took place in the vicinity described by diane in the area of marcola and old mohawk road which was a very desolate spot meanwhile diane was being treated for a superficial injury to her arm between the elbow and the wrist where she had tried to stop the gunman from taking aim at her children She was approached by the police while she was tended to, who noted that she was in an unusual state of calmness. Furthermore, her story did not add up to investigators, especially after the visit to the area in which she had said the incident occurred. It did not make sense that a mother would stop in a remote area like that with her three children in the dark. When Diane was informed of the passing of Cheryl, she took the news with Grace, but her attitude upon hearing that her other two children had survived stunned the hospital staff, as she asked about Danny in a perplexed manner. Quote, "Do you mean the bullet missed his heart?" "Gee whiz!" The reaction also shocked investigators. She was all too stoic for a mother whose children were shot, and investigators began to look into the life of Diane and her children. The forensics showed that the bullets that were fired at the children were twenty two caliber coming from either a handgun or a rifle, with detectives leaning towards a handgun. The children had powder burns on their skin, which indicated that the gun was fired at close range, and the blood evidence backed that up as well. The blood evidence also showed that the shots were fired from the driver's side area of the car, which matched with Diane's story that the stranger had reached through her window. To put together a timeline, Diane described the evening of the incident. According to Diane, she and the children ate a fast food dinner at home in their small duplex in Springfield and went to a coworker's house after. The coworker had mentioned she was interested in buying a horse, and Diane had found an interesting classified ad she wanted to show the coworker. She said she felt this was a good opportunity to get her kids out of the small house for a few hours. Diane had a brief interaction with the coworker and her husband and then set out for home. She chose to cut through Old Mohawk Road to the main highway as a means to do some sightseeing. This is where she encountered the man that she described as a white man, late 20s, about five nine, weighing between 150 and 170 pounds, with dark hair, a shag, wavy cut, and a stubble of a beard. He was wearing a Levi jacket and an off-colored tee. He was waving her down, and she braked and got out of the car, and at that point, the stranger pulled out a pistol from under his jacket and demanded the keys to her car. She refused, and then he opened fire on her children. She attempted to stop him, and that's how she got shot, sustaining the superficial injury to her arm. She then claims to have jumped into the car and sped off to the hospital. In the early stages of putting all the information together, Many people started having doubts about Diane's story. Several nurses and investigators were mortified when Diane went to the bedside of her surviving daughter, Christy, and as she walked in, Christy's eyes looked fearful above her oxygen mask, and her heart rate spiked from 104 to 149 instantaneously. Diane grabbed her daughter's hand and murmured, I love you, but her words and face were cold and her teeth were clenched. State troopers searched Diane's Springfield duplex and found her diary, a rifle, and a box of twenty two caliber shells. The same as the ones that had been taken from the children's bodies. They also found a picture of a young man with a beard among the pictures of Diane she had placed around the living room. Not long after arriving at the hospital, Diane placed a call to this man in Arizona, a former boyfriend. This call was placed before she knew the status of the children, and before she even called her ex-husband and father of the children to inform him of what had happened. Evidence was sent to the district attorney, Fred Hughey, who visited Christy and Danny and cried at the sight of the children who were hooked up to all kinds of machines and fighting for their lives. He knew something was wrong when their own mother had basically no reaction at the sight, and he, a stranger, had been moved to tears. He placed a guard with the children at all times to keep an eye on Diane and kept a child psychologist by Christie's side at all hours in case she became able to speak of the night she was shot. Doubt in Diane's story only grew as her story began to change, and in an interview with Diane's ex-husband, he alerted them that Diane had three guns, not just the two she had told them about. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. For the upcoming holiday season, I'd like to put together another bonus episode for my listeners, but this time I need your help. If you have a personal true crime or spooky PNW story, email me at upperleftpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Your story may be read on a future episode of Upper Left Corner. And now back to the story. Investigators found Steve Downs to be an open book. He shared how happy he was to get rid of his ex-wife and seemed perfectly content living a bachelor life and had no ill will or feelings towards Diane. He seemed like a concerned father who was hopeful that Christy and Danny would pull through and made arrangements to fly to Oregon to visit them, as he was still residing in Arizona. They also asked Steve about the man who Diane had called upon arrival at the hospital And he replied that it must be the married man that Diane had been having an affair with before leaving Arizona, the postal worker from Chandler who broke Diane's heart. He had been forgiven by his wife and was focusing on his marriage and raising their children together. When outright asked if he believed his ex-wife was capable of harming their children, Steve said no way. She loves those kids. After this interview, Diane was confronted about the third gun, and she denied she ever had it. Further evaluations just raised more red flags. Why would she take her kids sightseeing in the dark? If she had been shot while outside of the car, wouldn't she have grabbed the injury with her opposite hands? But there was no blood on the steering wheel. In fact, there was no blood near the driver's seat area at all leading investigators to believe that the gun had been fired from inside the vehicle, not through the window. They also found many love notes about her lover in her diary. There were letters, diary entries, and even poetry about him. One unmailed letter even begged Lou to be with her, stating, I don't need, to, I don't need you to be a dad to my kids. You won't ever have to be alone with them. Working in Diane's favor, however, was that the search for the murder weapon was unsuccessful. It was believed that the gun was likely tossed into a nearby river, which in the springtime flows quickly. Divers searched to no avail. And even worse, Christy suffered a stroke. Her speech was distorted, and doctors feared she may never speak again. The left side of her brain that controls the ability to speak had been injured by the stroke. But since she was so young, there was still a slight chance that the deterioration could be reversed with therapy. Cheryl Ann was laid to rest the week of May 23rd, and although it was a sad week, there was also reason to be optimistic. Christy and Danny were going to survive. Though one of Christy's arms was paralyzed and her speech was garbled, but her doctors were now hopeful that there would be improvement. Danny would be wheelchair-bound, likely for the rest of his life, but his brain had not been affected and he would live. Both of these kids surviving their injuries is an absolute miracle. Investigators went down to Arizona to dig up as much information on Diane as possible. They were able to establish that Steve Downs and Lou Lewiston were both in Arizona at the precise time of the attack, ruling them out as the bushy-haired man. They spoke with their coworkers at the Chandler Post Office. Not one person had a glowing review of Diane. Many said she was a wishy-washy person, who seemed to always either be mad or sad. Her convictions were unclear. She openly had many sexual relationships with men who were both available and unavailable, yet she took a stand against delivering Playboy magazines on her route. They interviewed Lou Lewiston, who detailed his affair with Diane. It had started in the mailroom. He was married with three children, and Diane was divorced with three children. He knew Diane's reputation, as she had been with many of their co-workers for short-lived flings, and he decided to partake, but had no intention of leaving his wife. But unlike her past flings, Diane became attached. She began to encourage him to leave his wife and children and start a life with her. They would spend all day at work together, and then their nights at a sleazy hotel. But Lou was adamant about staying with his wife and attempted to break it off with Diane when she started bringing her kids around. He didn't feel it was right as he viewed the relationship as just an affair to be around her kids. This is why Diane had been leaving her kids with babysitters or anyone else who she could drop them on during this time frame so that she could be with Lou. When he officially broke things off with her in February of 1983, he said she ranted, raved, and screamed at him like he had never seen anyone behave before. He held firm on not being with her again, and shortly thereafter, she put in her transfer for Oregon. But her letters and phone calls to Lou did not stop. Lou also backed up what Steve Downs had said about a third gun, and once again, Diane denied owning it. When investigators put together a timeline of events, they pinpointed if all of Diane's statements were true, the shooting would have occurred around 10.15 p.m., But a witness came forward who claims he saw Diane's red Nissan driving slowly, like way too slowly, along Old Mohawk Road. The reason the witness remembered the vehicle was that it was driving between 4 to 7 miles per hour at around 10.20 p.m. and had Arizona plates. A grand jury was convened, and also during this time, the two living children were placed in protective custody after Diane had threatened to remove the children from the hospital if law enforcement didn't leave her alone. Christy was sent to live with a foster family, where very few people knew where she was placed, and Danny, who was still hospitalized, was given a security detail for protection from Diane, and he would follow his sister to a foster home once he was well enough to do so. The investigation hit a rough point when budget cuts forced mass layoffs within the state government, and several lead investigators were laid off with a month's notice. Diane also began speaking to the press, who became obsessed with her. She said she was misunderstood and was being harassed by law enforcement. As much as they wanted to set the record straight, law enforcement stayed quiet and let her talk. Diane also became pregnant again during this time period. She told the press, You can't replace children, but you can replace the way they make you feel. Meanwhile, the police took this as an attempt to escape the death penalty when the case goes to trial. During this time, Christy also began making tremendous progress in her recovery. She was beginning to talk and face reality. She told a counselor that Diane had hit her and her siblings a lot, and eventually Christy told her about the event that she called that terrible thing. Paula Krogdahl, the counselor put in charge of helping Christy with her nightmares, was making excellent progress in the meantime. The child began to talk, to remember, and face reality. While Krogdahl tiptoed through her treatment, avoiding the murder scenario for a long time, she got Christie to speak about her family life and her mother. The district attorney, Fred Hugie, decided to move forward with charges— believing he had a strong case, and the grand jury was wrapping up after months of interviews, and they handed down an indictment. One charge of murder, two charges of attempted murder, and two charges of criminal assault. The state of Oregon was ready to go after Diane Downs. She was arrested on February 28, 1984. A media frenzy ensued. Reporters from all over the country, including Time Magazine and The Washington Post, were there. Diane sought out a high-profile attorney named Melvin Belly, but due to personal unbreakable plans, he could only defend Diane if the trial could be postponed for a few months, but the courts refused. If they were to delay the trial to fit into this attorney's schedule, they would then likely have to delay it further for Diane to give birth. The district attorney came to court armed with 24 volumes of evidence, statements, follow-ups, and transcriptions of tapes. Meanwhile, Diane was scrambling to find another lawyer quickly, and she selected Jim Jagger. The trial opened on May 10, 1984, at the Lane County Courthouse in Eugene. The jury consisted of nine women and three men and was presided over by Judge Foote, who happened to be the judge who took away custody of Christy and Danny from Diane. He was noted for being young, intense, and fair. Following the opening remarks by both sides, the jury was escorted to the scene of the crime via a chartered bus, followed by a trip to the location where the red Nissan had been impounded, so the jurors could get a look at that as well. Then it was time to hear the state's witnesses. Doctors and nurses who worked on the children on the night of the incident testified to how strangely Diane was acting. One nurse even claiming that Diane was laughing and said, "Well, I have good insurance." with a doctor stating she was unbelievably composed. There were no tears, no disbelief. While an x-ray tech claimed the mother of the wounded children complained about having to be seen in public without makeup. All of these people made an impact on the jury, but no witness was more riveting than when Christy Downs was brought to the stand. Fred Hugie, the district attorney who had put in 18 to 20 hours a day since the beginning of the investigation, led Christy to the stand with tears streaking down her face. You could tell that Hugie felt horrible about putting her in this predicament, but he also knew this would give him the best chance at putting Diane away for life. He handed Christy Kleenex and gave her time to calm down when needed, mostly when her eyes met with her mom's. It was obvious that Hugie detested what he was doing and cared deeply for this child, who he had fought to protect from Diane. He started by telling her how important it was to tell the truth, and then proceeded with some routine questions about herself, her family, her school, and then they got into the heavy stuff. They talked about the day of the crime, the visit to her mom's co-worker's house, and she answered those questions through sobs. Hugie responded with a reassuring smile and by patting her shoulder. The questioning continued, and Christy divulged that her mother shot Danny first, and then her, and then Cheryl. The testimony set the tone for the rest of the trial. Everything else seemed anticlimactic after that. The whole room knew Diane Downs was guilty. And furthermore, America, who had a hard time believing that this pretty mother of three, who was a dead ringer for Princess Diana, could be capable of murdering her children, and they had to come to the conclusion that she did. On June 14, 1984, Judge Foote read the unanimous verdict to the courtroom, guilty of a second account of attempted murder in the first degree. Guilty of first degree assault. Guilty of another count of first degree assault. Guilty of murder. Oregon did not impose the death penalty, but in the subsequent sentencing, the judge sentenced her to a life term plus an additional 50 years for using a firearm, expressing, quote, The court hopes that the defendant will never again be free. I've come as close to that as possible. Between the verdict and the sentencing, Diane gave birth to a daughter she named Amy. The father of the baby denied her, and she was adopted into a loving family. This should be the end of the wild story, but Diane had one more trick up her sleeve. In 1987, Diane escaped from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center, where she was incarcerated. She was recaptured and transported to the High Maximum Clinton Correctional Institution in New Jersey. Today, she sits in the Valley Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. She was up for parole in 2009 and has been denied every time she has applied. Diane's former lover, who authorities believe was the motive behind Diane's actions, remained happily married to his wife. Steve Downs was ruled unfit to parent his surviving children, as they now had permanent ailments from the attempted murder by their mother. Christy and Danny survived the ordeal. In 1986, they moved into their new home with their loving adoptive parents, Prosecutor Fred Hughey and his wife Joanne. The man who protected the kids from day one by posting security at their side and taking away custody from Diane to working so hard to put her away for life, adopted both Christy and Danny. The Hugies raised the kids in a happy home, though they preferred to live a private life. Famed true crime author Anne Rule provided an update a few years back, stating that both Christy and Danny had graduated from college, and Christy was now married and a mother, and Danny is a computer whiz. And that is the case of Diane Downs. My main source for this episode today is an article by Joseph Geringer for True TV, and all of my sources, as always, are listed in my show notes and on my website at upperleftpodcast.com. This week's PNW wine that I paired with my True Crime, we're headed back down to Oregon to Shea Wine Cellars for their 2019 Breakaway Pinot Noir. This new release is a barrel selection of some of the prettiest wine from Shea Wine Cellars, which is known for its ripe flavors and rich textures. This wine breaks away from the norm with its delicate beauty. Pretty red fruit aromatics with cherry, strawberry, and pomegranate lead to a refined palate with a long, beautiful finish. You can order yours at Shea wine Cellars, S-H-E-A wine Cellars, dot com, but they made less than 150 cases, so you'd better hurry. Cheers and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at upperleftcornerpod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.